The scripture reading today is Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who have a pure heart. But me? My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I envied the arrogant. I observed how the wicked are well off. They suffer no pain. Their bodies are fit and strong. They are never in trouble. They aren't weighed down like other people. They wear their arrogance like a necklace. Why, violence covers them like clothes. Their eyes bulge out from eating so well. Their hearts overflow with delusions. They scoff and talk so cruel. From their privileged positions, they plan oppression. Their mouths dare to speak against heaven. Their tongues roam the earth. That's why people keep going back to them, keep approving what they say. And what they say is this, how could God possibly know? Does the Most High know anything at all? Look at these wicked ones, always relaxed, piling up the wealth. Meanwhile, I've kept my heart pure for no good reason. I've washed my hands to stay innocent for nothing. I'm weighed down all day long. I'm punished every morning. If I said, I will talk about all this, I would have been unfaithful to your children. But when I try to understand these things, it just seemed like hard work. Until I entered God's sanctuary and understood what would happen to the wicked. You will definitely put them on a slippery path. You will make them fall into ruin. How quickly they are devastated, utterly destroyed by terrors. As quickly as a dream departs from someone waking up, my Lord, when you are stirred up, you make them disappear. When my heart was bitter, when I was all cut up inside, I was stupid and arrogant. I acted nothing like nothing but an animal toward you. But I was still always with you. You held my strong hand. You have guided me with your advice. Later, you will receive me with glory. Do I have anyone else in heaven? There's nothing on earth I desire except you. My body and my heart fail, but God is my heart's rock and my share forever. Look, those far from you die. You annihilate all those who are unfaithful to you. But me? It's good for me to be near God. I have taken my refuge in you, my Lord God, so I can talk all about your works. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you that 
you have the words of life. And that you want us to hear your voice, your words this morning. You desire for us to be fully alive. Your desire for us is to be wholeheartedly ourselves. And so God, we come trusting in you, trusting in your heart and your character and your will for our lives. We ask that you would open our hearts to see you and to have an encounter with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. There are at least two kinds of games. According to James Cars, a late professor of history and literature who taught at NYU for many years. He says one could be called finite, the other infinite. A finite game is played for the purpose of winning. An infinite game for the purpose of continuing the play. Finite game for the purpose of winning, an infinite game for the purpose of continuing the play. And so finite games have fixed rules. There's an agreed-upon objective, and you know when it's over because there's a clear winner, a victorious uh, uh, competitor who has emerged. In an infinite game, the rules are changeable. The objectives um, are, or the one objective is really to perpetuate the game, the play. So maybe to put this in context, I remember having a conversation just recently with one of my sons. It was the end of a long day, and he was, he was going to, to bed, and I, I looked him in the eyes, and I said, you know, I miss you. And he looked back at me a little quizzically because we had actually spent a pretty decent amount of time um, that day, and he was wondering what I meant by that. And I tried to explain to him, you know, like I said, you know, we've been at each other's throats. You know, like we, we've been trying to one-up each other. And we've been trying to beat each other down because we've been playing a lot of games. Um, you know, just sports, video games, things like that. And, and what I realized was that we were playing a lot of finite games. And sometimes in the midst, at least for me, like the competitive part of me, has a really hard time distinguishing between this is me playing a game with my son and this is me parenting, right? <laughs> um, what I didn't say, I think I might have said something to this, to this effect, but like, I think what I was also feeling was kind of tired of getting my butt kicked by someone half my size and you know, half my age. Well, he's a lot younger than that, but we don't have to get into that right now, right? Um, what I wanted to say, he's actually listening right now, and so maybe I can say this, you know, a younger version of me, you know, um, stronger, faster, less prone to exhaustion in the middle of strenuous physical activity, a younger version of me would have given you a run for your money, right? <laughs> but see, this is important. It's an important life skill to know the difference between when you're playing a finite game and when you're playing an infinite game. Right? We, at the end of a game, we have to be able to, to close up shop or that, that chapter or that moment and move on to being friends again or, or a, you know, a father and son again or lovers again or acquaintances again or, or brothers and sisters again. 
And this is kind of the movement that we see happening in the middle of the Psalter. The Psalter is a songbook. And in the Old Testament, we happen to have 150 songs. And there's a movement. There's a movement that happens. The, the Old Testament, Walter Brueggemann talks about this movement in the Psalter that, says, that he says uh, moves from obedience to praise, from duty to delight. In other words, he's actually stating something very obvious. As you work your way through these songs, and what he knows, of course, is that this is the song of Israel, of God's people living in exile. And the book of Psalms was uh, very lightly compiled, scholars would say, during the period of the Babylonian exile. And this is God's people trying to move through life, singing songs of faith, which sometimes slip into notes of despair. But what's really important to note is that as you work your way through the Psalms, there's actually a movement. And so when you read Psalm 1 and when you read Psalm 150, they're actually very different kinds of songs. And there's a whole lot of movement in between. And Psalm 73, wouldn't you know it, it's kind of right smack in the middle. And right smack in the middle, we have this song that's kind of stuck, that's trying to facilitate the movement, that's leaning forwards, but that's also lurching backwards. And so this, these are the two points I want to explore with you to try and help us understand, all of us, myself included, understand what's happening in this song. Because there's a, a backwards lurch and a forward lean. There's a way in which Psalm 73 is kind of stuck in Psalm 1 kind of unable to move past it. And there's a way in which it's moving towards reaching for Psalm 150. Stuck in obedience, moving towards praise. Stuck in duty, a sense of duty, moving towards delight. And what you notice in the, in the opening verse of uh, Psalm 73 is a recitation a, uh, a reminder to oneself. The psalmist may be speaking to his own heart, saying, surely God is good to God's people. In this case, it's Israel. Surely God is good to the upright, the righteous. Why? Because Psalm 1 said, if you are righteous, God will bless you. And if you are unrighteous, God will abandon you. And there's something very reassuring about that very binary, dualistic clarity, moral clarity about the world. Oh, so you're telling me as long as I do what God wants me to do, God will bless me. And if I should stray, God's going to get me. But that's okay because if I can just control, temper my heart, my soul, my life, and do what God wills for me, then everything is going to turn out peachy. Well, that sounds great to me. It sounds like a plan at least. And the psalmist moves on already in verse 2. The psalmist says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. And then verse 3, you get a sense of why. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Already in verse 3, see, there was a, a rehearsal, a recitation of Psalm 1, and then there's a questioning of Psalm 1. In verse 3 already, wait, wait, wait a minute, why are the wicked prospering? In Psalm 1, we were clearly told, at least the psalmist loudly declared, the righteous will prosper. The wicked have no business prospering. They're supposed to be blown away like chaff in the wind. What are they doing prospering? 
You see, there are cracks in the facade of Psalm 1. And you don't have to get to Psalm 73 to realize this. The Psalter already reflects this reality because when you get past Psalms 1 and 2, which are the introductory, the two-paneled introduction to the Psalter, Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 are actually all lament songs. I am weary. I am in agony. Why is the psalmist weary? Why is the psalmist in agony? Because there's something about that moral clarity of Psalm 1 that breaks down the moment you step into the world. And Psalm 73 gives voice to this crack in the facade of Psalm 1. One of the things that we have to realize is that every song in this book is less than 1%. I'm not very good at math, but even I know. It's less than 1% of the Psalms, of the Psalter as a whole. There's no way that we can expect one song to tell the whole story. And so there's movement and there's impartial, imperfect tellings of who God is in each of these songs. But there's cracks in these songs, aren't there? You know, Psalm, like for instance, if you did away with all 149 other Psalms and just clung to Psalm 1, you would have a really warped theology and view of God and life. Many of us have grown up with these kinds of so called theologies. If you pray before you drive, you'll never have a car accident. If you go to church every Sunday, God will bless you. You will be wealthy and smart and good looking and. Well, how did that turn out for you? Some of you pretty well, and some of us not so well, right? If you do good, God will always have your back. You realize it's a really, really naive and simplistic way to approach life. It's also a really naive and simplistic way to approach faith. So there are cracks in the facade of Psalm 1. There are contradictions to Psalm 1, too, because... That verse 3, the prosperity of the wicked, it's not, just, it's not just material prosperity. That word, if you read it in the Hebrew, you know what that word, it's the one Hebrew word that most of you know. Shalom. I saw the shalom. of the. What are those wicked people doing, enjoying my shalom? The shalom that belongs rightly to God's people. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, their bodies are healthy and strong. I see them eating Big Macs and drinking Mountain Dew, but their bodies are strong, (laughs) healthy. Verse 12, love, hate, verse 12. Look at these wicked ones, always relaxed, piling up the wealth. There are contradictions to Psalm 1. You hear it, right? Now, because Psalm 73 is in the middle of the Psalter, what you also have to realize is that there's kind of a moment of light, there's a moment of understanding, there's a moment of deep spiritual enlightenment. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But you get that in sort of the the middle of the psalm, and then towards the end of the the Psalm 73 again, what you hear is a doubling down on Psalm 1. So it seems like they're turning the corner. But then in verse 15, if I had spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. Verse 18, kind of here a recurrence and a, a return to Psalm 1 thinking. You will make them fall to ruin. 
oh yeah, this is temporary, but eventually the moral, the, the moral universe will right itself and God will rise victorious and I will have my day in the sun. And then verse 27, you annihilate all those who are unfaithful. Now whether or not you're tracking with me, can we just agree that that's bad theology? You will annihilate all those who are unfaithful. This is the scary, dangerous fruit of Psalm 1. I hope this is not a controversial thing to say. That when the psalmist declares, you will annihilate, God, you will annihilate. That is the hope on which I rest. That is the hope that allows me to, to get up out of bed every morning because I know that God will annihilate the wicked. And I know there's all kinds of nuancing and expansion of that 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 understanding of, of wickedness and wickedness getting its just desserts that happen. But friends, it's still a bad theology. To defenders of Psalm 1, I know you're here, okay, in a group like this, to the, to the defenders of Psalm 1 in our midst, can we just say, like, we don't have to get into an argument about who's right. Can we just talk about, is it honest? Is Psalm 1 honest? Yes. I think we can all agree. Psalm 1 is an honest testimony of a person of faith trying to make sense of the world, trying to navigate the world. Very likely, it's the people of God in Babylonian exile who have been moved, right, transplanted to exile, trying to, to gather their wits again. And there's movement. There's a movement of faith that happens in the course of Psalm 1. And so I don't want to say that Psalm 1 is just bad and we should discard it and never read it and never think about it because all of us have to have some kind of ground from which we start. But can we also be honest and say, this is an honest expression of faith, and there is movement. What is that movement? Well, there's a glimpse of a world beyond Psalm 1 that we see in this Psalm 73. There's sublime beauty. beauty. Whom, have I, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My strength and my flesh may fail, but God is my portion forever. You see the, the psalmist shifting into kind of an infinite, from a, a finite mindset to an infinite mindset. God, you, you are the object of my longing. I don't care about these people who are prospering. I don't care to quibble about whether they are right or wrong. You, God, you, God the object of my heart, the object of my faith, the longing in which I find my restless heart finds its home. And so there's this movement, as, and as you go through the Psalms, in the middle of the Psalter, or at the very beginning, and maybe, maybe even towards the middle, and towards the, the middle, kind of um, the second half of the middle Psalms, there are laments. But by the end, you have these hallelujah Psalms. The last five songs uh, in the Psalter are called the Hallelujah Chorus. But already in Psalm 105, you have these very um, uh, unrestrained expressions of uh, euphoric, enthusiastic praise, delight, trusting in God, loving God. And this is what James Carr also says about um, the difference between finite games and infinite games, and players who play these games. He says, finite players play within the boundaries. 
Infinite players play with the boundaries. I love that. And he also talks about the difference between oftentimes the finite games are what you play in society and infinite games are what you play in culture. So let me just get, this is going to get a little bit into the weeds, but I think this would be helpful for us as we think about what it means to understand and to lean into the infinite spirituality of Psalm 73. The honesty is just a little bit there. It doubles down. It returns to Psalm 1 thinking again. But if you think of the Psalter as a whole, there is a movement that we are lurching towards. And, so, and just reflect on this difference between the ramifications of the consequences of finite versus infinite games. This is what Carr says. Like a finite game, a society is numerically, spatially, and temporally limited. Its citizenship is precisely defined. Its boundaries are inviolable. And its past is enshrined. Okay? Culture, on the other hand is an infinite game. Culture has no boundaries. Anyone can be a participant in a culture, anywhere and at any time. And this has ramifications for how we think about deviations, for instance. He says, deviation is an anti-societal and therefore uh, behavior and therefore forbidden by society under a variety of sanctions. And so societies would create rules legislate behavior and say, if you deviate, right, then we're going to get you. You will be punished. Deviancy, however, is the very essence of culture. Whoever merely follows the script, merely repeating the past, you might say is culturally impoverished. There's this invitation to freedom. There's this invitation to delight, to play, to relationship. It's not that a relationship of obedience is not a relationship, but there's a deeper and richer relationship and a movement that every right and good human relationship ought to move towards. There was an old couple, Frank and Edith, who lived kind of in the middle of nowhere. And um, Edith one day woke up in the morning and noticed a little bump on her abdomen. And so she went to her country doctor, and um, he ran some tests. And after a couple of visits, the, the doctor said, you know, you really ought to go to the hospital in the city. They can do, you know, maybe an ultrasound and do more extensive tests. One of the things that Edith realized was that Frank does not like going into the city. And so she knew it was going to be a struggle. But after weeks, maybe months, of talking about this, Frank finally said, okay, we'll go. We'll make the appointment, we'll go. And he pulled out his you know, 69 Grand Torino, let's say, that had like 3,000 miles on it. And he got, they both got into the car. And, but Frank was kind of grumpy about this. Like, oh, I, don't, I don't know about this. But they got into the car, and they started driving. And he had um, one of those old Rand McNally atlases pulled out, you know, this big map. And there might have been a fight or two about um, Edith's navigation skills. But they made their way, these two old couple um, that lived many decades together. And Edith was, you know, just talking away. She was so relieved and happy and nervous all at the same time. Um, and Frank was kind of grumpy about this, right? And he let his grumpiness or his, his displeasure kind of seep out in different ways. And um, partway through the trip, uh, they stopped for gas. And Frank got out and he got, you know, he filled up the gas and ran in for some snacks and got a little bit distracted by the young attendant who was kind of, you know, attractive and got back in the car and was driving again. And about half hour, about a half hour in, 
he noticed, man, it's awfully quiet. It's like, it's, this is not like Edith. So he looks over and his jaw drops to the ground. Why? Because Edith is nowhere to be found. He's trying to, he's, what happened? Where is, where is Edith? He's wondering, going back in his mind, and he remembers her talking, saying something about going to use the restroom when they were at the gas station. And so he realized, oh my, he, it dawns on him, oh, I left her behind. So he, he quickly exits the highway and tries to go back to the gas station. But this is, remember, this is the middle of nowhere. And the way back is not all that intuitive. And so he finds himself lost in cornfields and in these kind of large expanses. And, and it, take, it actually takes a couple of hours to get back to the gas station. Gets back there, runs out, and looks for Edith. Edith, even at the gas station, nowhere to be found. Um, and he talks to one of the, uh, the same gas uh, station attendant and says, oh, I'm looking for my wife. And just, oh, that sweet old lady. Oh, she was not very happy. But her son came and picked, him up, picked her up just a few minutes ago. You, you missed them by maybe like 20 minutes. Frank's heart sinks because he knows. He knows what he's done. And so he goes home and he notices his uh, son Andy. His truck is in the driveway and Frank can't, just can't muster up the, the courage to, to go home, you know, right away. So he pulls up um, in a, a spot where his car can remain out of sight and waits, waits for his son Andy to go home. Waits and waits, it gets dark. And finally, late at night, you know, Andy gets into his truck and finally goes home. He's like, thank goodness, now I can go home. So Frank goes, quietly goes home. Um, he parks at the ed- end of the driveway. He doesn't want Edith to hear the car come in. He wants to scope out the situation, okay? He goes in, and then as he's walking up the driveway, he notices the smell wafting through the air of tomato soup and grilled cheese, one of his favorite dishes. He gets home, and, and he notices her silhouette in the kitchen, uh, her kind of stooped over the stove, stirring that pot, looking a little bit more tired than usual, a little older than normal, than usual, and he goes in. She doesn't hear him coming. He lets the screen door slam behind him, and startled by the sound, she turns around, and she's, you know, been stirring this tomato soup, and um, now she's got it kind of like holding it in her hand, and she's got, she's kind of a menacing silhouette, you know, in the kitchen light, because there's, you know, this red liquid dropping, dripping down onto the kitchen floor, and Frank is thinking, oh my goodness, what is going to happen? What am I in for? And Edith drops that ladle, and she runs towards him and says, oh, Frank, I was so worried about you. Where have you been? I was so worried about you. Friends, who is your God? What is the picture of God with which you live? Is it a God who is meticulous about the rules, has very clear, rigid standards, and if you go out, he will maybe annihilate you? Or is your picture of a God who is so loving, who is so caring, who is so forgiving that he invites you into delightful play? into deep and loving relationship, into the kind of relationship that extends forgiveness, 
the kind that extends grace, the kind that invites playfulness and playing with the boundaries and, and discovering what it means to live and discovering what, what it means to be fully yourself and fully alive, a God who delights in you. Friends, will you cling? Will you cling to a Psalm 1 vision of life all the days of your life? Will you double down on it? Or will you look beyond? Will you look beyond and will you let yourself be carried through the journey of the Psalter, through all the years, through all the steps, through all the songs, even the blasphemous ones, even the theologically incorrect ones, will you let yourself be carried along in that journey? Yes, to a world where righteousness prevails. I want that too. So yes to that world. Yes to a world where wickedness would turn to dust. I want that too. But even more, even more, let us hunger and thirst for a world without end where all flourish, where other people enjoying the shalom of God far from leading us to a crisis of faith leads us to understand that that is the very goal of faith and it is the very heart of God's desire for all of us. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you lived this very kind of life. That you came to us and you, yes, you came to fulfill the law, but your fulfillment of the law was not some kind of slavish obedience to the law, but you led us to delightful, to grace-filled relationships. Dear Jesus, we ask that you would help us to not only understand, but to live into the fullness of the truth and the wisdom of Psalm 73. We thank you that when we are disappointed with you, when we are disoriented because of this thing that we call faith and the journey of faith that we are on, we thank you that you are a loving, doting, forgiving, gracious God who invites us deeper into your heart, deeper into relationship with you. Help us to believe it and help us to live it in our lives for the sake of your world. In Jesus' name, amen.